Hello and welcome to episode two of the CDW Canada Tech Talks podcast. I'm your host, KJ Burke. Today, we're going to speak to two of CDW Canada's cybersecurity experts about how generative AI, natural language processing, and large language models are both a risk and a tool for cybersecurity professionals. So thanks for joining me today, guys. I've got uh, Evo Weens and uh, Dave Izzard. Uh, Evo, if you could maybe introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your background in, in cybersecurity. Sure. Um, Eva Weens, I've been uh, in about cybersecurity for about 20 years. Started specifically on a penetration testing side of the house. Moved over to do some consulting for a number of years. Managed a security operations center for a number of years. And currently my title uh, is the field CTO for cybersecurity here at CDW. What that means is I help with, with strategy and what we're going to do from a product perspective, we're going to do from a services perspective, and what we continue to really grow the CDW security brand within Canada and the world. Yeah, and one of the things that you do, Evo, that I find really interesting, and I know, um, you know CDW has been doing for, I think this will be the 10th year, uh, is the cybersecurity study. And uh, and so, you know, I referenced that last year on the podcast. We're going to reference it this year. More and more cybersecurity is something that we all have to play a part in. And so, you know, could you maybe talk a little bit about the, the cybersecurity study and kind of how that is driving some of the conversations before we kind of get into more of the topics we're going to cover and talk to Dave? Sure. We've been doing this uh, the security study, I think, for nine years or so now, KJ, and uh, many iterations of it. And it's been a, a really an important piece of what we do from not only taking a pulse of what the, the Canadian landscape is looking like from a cybersecurity perspective, but really being able to really feed that back to clients and say, here's what the world looks like for you and what's changing and how do you relate to the data that's been found. This previous year, we were already working on, on the one that's coming up uh, later in 2024, but in this previous year, there were 553 respondents that we did this together with IDC and you know, really asking the questions. We, we come up with the questions uh, and really take the pulse of how things are in Canada. It's the only one of its kind. There's really larger uh, ones that you we've heard about, like the Verizon report that are larger international type uh, perspective, but this is the only one that really takes the pulse out of what happens in Canada allows us to put questions that are specific to Canadian organizations. Canada's different when it comes to the size of organizations, but also uh, in terms of privacy, in terms of uh, how our government runs differently than the U.S., right? So it's good for us to have that comparative set of data, and it's really allows us to be able to talk to clients about what, what things are at. And it's going to cover a lot of what we're talking about today. Uh, we're going to compare it back to what comes out of that study. So I'm excited. I'm excited about what we're doing here today. And the study will be sort of the beginning of this conversation. AI has been moving much faster than we can conduct studies. I think it's good for us to sort of use it as, as a, almost a starting point for what's changed in the last while. Yeah, and one of the things I really look forward to with the security study is seeing how things change from year to year and having such a a history of doing it. I think it's been interesting to see, you know, those trends and, and how they affect. So David, if you could introduce yourself and talk a little bit about kind of what you do here at CDW Canada as part of our, our cybersecurity team and, and uh, product development. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, David Azard, I'll just give a little bit about my background. Uh, so similar to Evo, I've been in, in IT and security for a long time, 22 years in IT and about 19 in cybersecurity. A little bit of different track from other folks, I think. I've kind of, I came up the application development staff as a programmer first and uh, kind of got my way into cybersecurity on that side. And have had a very, I'll call it diverse uh, career so far in cybersecurity from you know, running cybersecurity teams and operations centers to building cybersecurity programs and doing advisory services as well, both on the customer side, uh, as well as now for uh, with CDW. I work very closely with Evo doing the product development as well, uh, mostly on the cybersecurity services, whether that be uh, professional or managed services, uh, but really focused on strategy, helping CDW figure out where customers need help and providing those services to our customers. Yeah. And one of the things that I like about your background, I think you and I both share, is is spending that time on the customer side of things. It's it's very different when you're working within an organization having to to protect or innovate or or drive change as part of a uh, a business or an organization it, it's a little bit different than CDW Canada and how we're trying to really help all different types of organizations and so so i find that that's always uh, very compelling could you maybe speak a little bit just to your background on that side of the fence and and kind of what that brings to your perspective yeah i think i, I think you kind of nailed it there kj when you look at 
you know, working for a company like CDW in a focused role, um, you can focus specifically and very narrowly on a, whether a specific cybersecurity domain or set of technologies. When you're with an organization and you're responsible for cybersecurity, or in my case, where I was responsible for both cybersecurity and the enterprise architecture, you have to take a much broader look and you have to do a lot of, of horse trading, right? And cost comes into play and you need to take a, a look at value and you can't do everything all at once. There's limits on resources, uh, whether that be financial or personnel, there's timing constraints. So you got to do a lot more balancing. You have to be more, I think, more broadly focused. And as I said, you have to do some trades. What that allows you to do, though, I think, at least in my opinion, is, is with that perspective, is really take a hard look at some of the investments that you need to make and examine and read through the hype that's in the industry, you know, which is obviously going to be pertinent to, to, you know, talking about AI within cybersecurity. You know, there's a lot of hype in cybersecurity. And when you're on the CDW side, again, you're or, or the vendor side, you know, you can focus and you can really drill down deep into that hype. And, and you've got the ability to, to dive deep into the technology, not necessarily considering the important business context and the value proposition. That I think that lens of being on the customer side for so long when you've got those constraints and budgets allow you to really, it forces you actually to take a, a much more critical eye on, on some of the technologies or some of the statements maybe that are made um, around that kind of hype cycle and really dive in deep the meat of what's important to the business and really focus from the business objectives perspective. Yeah, I think that's great perspective. And, you know, when I look at it, I think one of the keys there that you talk about is, is you know, trade-offs. And so one of the key things that we want to sort of talk about today is really around risk. And risk is not something that exists just as a thing. It's really the, the risk versus the cost of mitigating the risk, the challenges of mitigating the risk, and then what is the overall impact of that to you? So, so I think, you know, again, having that perspective of, of being part of an organization and having to weigh risk and cost and impact, I think is a really good perspective that, that'll bring to the conversation today. So, so we'll go ahead and jump into it. Right off the bat, Evo, you know, we mentioned uh, AI, we've talked about you know, large language models, the ability to translate what I want to do into actual scripting or, or into tools that will, will help me be more effective without necessarily having to have that underlying you know, programming capabilities or, or skills. And so when we look at the state of cybersecurity, you think about you know, the, the security report and, and how that's come about. What has really changed over the last, you know, I wanted to say 18 months originally, but maybe it's more the last six months. Like, like what's really changed over, you know, last year and going into 2024 when our customers and our partners are looking at, at cybersecurity and looking at risk? I think even before we've had really the, the explosion of the large language models and, and what's happened in the last, I think, 18 months, whatever the timeline is, we're, we're going to talk about this now and in the future. Uh, there was already a sort of a, an arms race happening. Uh, with attackers and what's happening uh, from a defense perspective and from a detection perspective, from a response perspective within organizations. So similar to a traditional arms race, right? So we're, you know, hackers and cyber criminals are always developing more sophisticated ways and techniques to breach organizations. And that that was one of the major findings of the report as well, is that we're, we're seeing a lot more sophistication when it comes to attacks. Even prior to having all those amazing AI tools in hand, attackers were already doing more sophisticated attacks, and we're seeing less and less of those drive-by sort of attacks that we've seen in the past as well. So th that has changed, right? In, in, in this ongoing cyber race, we see the stakes are high, and one of the big findings is that organizations are falling behind more than ever. They've made their move to the cloud, and they're not securing it correctly. They've, they've made major moves because of COVID, and now we're playing catch-up. And that was pre-giving attackers all, all, the, all the amazing tools to continue to try and breach organizations. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that, as you point out, that change in sophistication potentially becomes really challenging and will drive a lot of, of uh, conversation around automating creation of tools to then <laughs> uh, take that sophistication and maybe transfer it into, you know, people that are, are uh, haven't had the capabilities before. So, so Dave, to kind of add on to that, what are you seeing and, and, and how are you looking at the changes that we've been, you know, encountering over the last 18 months? Yeah, you know, it's funny because I'm taking a slightly different stance. I think the Nevo, I don't think it's changed as much as we think it has. The attacks, the malicious uh, actors that are out there, th their attacks and their, uh, I will say, aggressiveness has continued to accelerate uh, regardless of 
whether AI has been involved or not. And I think it's a bit of a misnomer too, that AI is somehow new in the cybersecurity arms race, which is something that Evo did touch on. You know, AI has been used by control vendors for quite a long time. It's been used by threat actors for quite a long time. And again, you'll, you'll, uh, I'm going to mention hype quite a bit. There is a lot of hype around generative AI within the cybersecurity space and what it is going to do. And it has not really yet materialized as anything significant. It will. I think that, you know, that's clear. That is going to happen, but it's not there yet. There certainly has been, uh, you know, kind of some leaps, for example, malware as a service. Now you can get, uh, you can use generative AI to, to certainly write um, malware to write that word. I think it was word GPP is what it was called, for example. It hasn't really been that effective as of yet. It hasn't created really more advanced or sophisticated attacks as of yet. And in terms of on the flip side, on the protection side, the panacea that generative AI is supposed to, to provide for organizations is the ability to take really somebody who's maybe very junior in the space and help them to guide them through and how to do an investigation when there is an incident. And it's just not there yet. And the top vendors are still in the process of developing what that looks like. You know, there's been one vendor in particular who's got something set to release, but it's not there yet. A couple of the other top 10 tier vendors are saying they're going down that path but simply have not released anything yet. And I think that's because it's it's not as simple as maybe what we make it out to be, where we can just take generative AI, throw it at a whole bunch of different types of security instances and say, okay, walk us through how to investigate this properly. It's a little bit more nuanced than that. Are we going to get there? I think that's absolutely uh, and undoubtedly, but we haven't gotten there yet. So if you look at like the last six to eight months, uh, I'll use that time frame. That's the one, uh, KJ, that you'd kind of wanted to shrink it down to. I don't actually think much has changed in the space other than the, the attacks have simply accelerated, but they were accelerating regardless of generative AI. Yeah, I think what, what's interesting there is uh, I think there's a there's a bit of a delay from uh, uh, an organizational ability to take advantage of generative AI. A lot of it is data QA and, and data categorization. What is the best code to, to automate? So could be that we're kind of all in this in this uh, feeling out phase together, both the bad actors and the corporations and and the you know private businesses and and ever in us, <laughs> so so it's a good point there. I do agree with you that the best and the worst is kind of yet to come, and and I think it's going to you know drive capabilities for both the good guys and and the the bad guys. I agree 100 with both what uh, Dave and you, what you're saying, KJ. We also have to remember that while we have moral high grounds we're standing on, or or, or things that we are defining as where we should or shouldn't be using AI, attackers are not, right? Attackers are not living by those standards that they're they're using whatever technology they have to attack and to gain financial or IP within organizations as well. I just want to add on to that. I think the one thing I worry a little bit that we lose sight of when we start thinking about AI and cybersecurity is we're almost exclusively focusing on the external threat that AI represents. And I think, quite frankly, a much bigger threat to organizations is when they start to use AI on their own data and the risks that it is going to create for that organization, irrespective of some external party. I think there's a, a significant risk to privacy, a significant risk to data exposure, not to malicious individuals or through malicious actors, but rather through either inadvertent exposures, errors, admit omissions, those types of things. And it's funny because we, it, in, and this is a general statement I think we can say with cybersecurity, over the last 10 years, we really focused a lot on the external. Most of the controls that we put into place are focused on the external. And in fact, most of the AI, most, not all, that we're bringing to bear for cybersecurity is focused on the external, detecting external attacks as an example. We need much more focus, in my opinion, on the internal. Um, insider threat has always been some of the biggest threats to organizations, uh, particularly from security and privacy. And I think AI is really going to open the Pandora box there. And as a cybersecurity professional, again, hearkening uh, back to being on the customer side, right? It's it's never just about the outside. It is about the inside, and it is about protecting privacy. And that is that's as much a governance activity as it is a control activity, where you need the processes and, and people in place to really assess the use of AI on a corporation's data. 
Yeah, it's a great point. And, and that is it, literally this morning I was having that conversation with our hybrid team is around that insider risk, right? And, and so you're right. Risk is not just an external force. Uh, it's not just bad actors external to your organization. It's also inside your organization. And you're right. The same tools that we're looking to optimize the way you and I and everybody does their job could be leveraged to be more effective in, in internal <laughs> compromising of, of data or finding data that maybe people didn't realize was part of the data set that, that again, provides an outcome that an organization isn't looking for, whether that's PII, whether that's compensation information, whatever it happens to be, you're making your people more effective at finding those things as well that maybe aren't operating in the best interest of the business. So Evo, when you look at at that sort of internal, external, when we look at at some of the trending that we're seeing, how does that look specific in Canada? So so first of all, you know, any response to kind of what, what Dave was talking about? And then we'll talk a little bit about some of the trending that we're seeing within Canada. Oh, absolutely. I think the... Uh, uh... All, you know, when we talk about that internal attacker, one thing I wanted to add is, you know, we've been using the buzzword of zero trust for a long time as, you know, first it was a technology or, or was a, a network segmentation, but really it's it's coming to its own as a philosophy now. And that's one of the findings of the studies that people who are adapting it to their business and using it as a philosophy are doing better than those who aren't. So we're seeing that perspective. And, and when it comes to zero trust, you know, where the AI is, is, another, is another agent you're bringing into your organization, you're going to have to treat it in the same way you did with, with other things you're bringing into your organization, maybe even with more uh, due diligence and more careful planning around it, because it doesn't have some of the limitations that we have as humans, has other limitations that we can talk about. But when it comes to overall number of attacks in Canada, the, the data really that came back is the number of cyber attacks actually saw a decline. But the number of successful incidents continues to trend upwards. So we saw a sharp uptick in exfiltrations, so basically breaches, in the study. And, and the number of breaches jumped from 13 to 30. So 2022, uh, 13, and 2023 to 30. So the number of infiltrations also increased from uh, under 11 and 22 to over 20, 28. So more sophistication, more effective attacks, uh, and the infection rate also saw an increase. Now, 2024 study will really start to tell us the story of did AI make a difference here? I agree with Dave. I don't think I don't think it's going to rock the boat in terms of of actual attacks that are happening now. I think an easy sort of thought behind it is that phishing should become an easier path for for getting to to better looking phishing or or even you know really targeted attacks around email. But again, you're looking for a vulnerability in, in, a, in a human here, right? So the, those factors aren't always just as clear cut as better, that a better email will catch more people where it needs to be uh, further analyzed. I think, I think there's multiple ways that attackers will use it. Um, I think the industry is going to hopefully keep pace with it. And, and that's not even getting into what the gov government will do. But we're, that, that trend, I think, will continue to grow. That, that sophistication will continue to grow rather than uh, just the overall volume of attacks. Yeah, I, actually, there's two things I want to touch on there, Eva. One is on, on what's going to happen, what we're going to see in 2024. I do think we're going to see, actually, a significant acceleration in successful breaches, not necessarily as a result of AI. I think I think we actually run the risk of assuming it's AI, and maybe it's not. And the reason I say that is there's, there's a couple pieces of uh, le legislation and regulation that are going to come into effect. Uh, they're going to affect the private sector. One is the enhanced privacy legislation within Canada, which is going to require mandatory breach notification. And then there's also the SEC regulation um, out of the U.S. that's also going to require mandatory breach notification. And the reason I say that that may have an effect is right now, you know, even though it is an anonymous study, right, we, we, we don't ask necessarily organizations to disclose their, who they are. There are organizations that are probably going to be a lot less apt to just say, hey, yes, we've experienced a breach in the last 12 months year of what that might mean. Once mandatory breach notification is in place in regulations and in legislation, I think it's going to either force organizations to disclose more or they'll simply be more willing to. And that could sway the data, right? And again, data is, is kind of key to all of this. We don't really know or won't really know whether or not that is a result of this new legislation or regulation frameworks that have come into play, or is it a result of, of AI really coming to bear, uh, or is it something else? 
so that's kind of point one on on the phishing thing. I, this is where actually I I think I am the most worried about AI. I'm I'm not myself worried about bad actors bringing AI to bear to craft phishing emails uh, and voice uh, messages and whatnot. That I'm less concerned with because it's pretty good now. I don't think you're going to see sizable returns, if you will, from AI. Where I get more concerned with AI is actors being able to target individuals specifically based on their susceptibility to phishing by simply taking a bunch of their publicly exposed data, whether that be from social networking or other types of publicly available information, throw it into AI, have it churn and spit out a susceptibility index for an individual. Meaning, if that does does bear out, that the phishing attacks will be much more successful because it will be less broad stroke and much more targeted to individuals, not based on their importance in an organization or their access to data, but simply their susceptibility to being convinced within a phishing attack. And I think that's, that's where AI, I have some concerns there, particularly when we start layering on the ability to generate audio, the ability to generate video, you can really get a convincing attack based on all those parameters. So that that for me is a much more uh, concerning aspect of AI and phishing. Yeah, I think that's a great call out because I think all of us have been recipients of various phishing emails. And we could tell right away because the the language was broken. There there was or or you get a, a voicemail or or a text and and it's trying to get you in an urgent way to respond to something. And it's very easy to tell just based on the language. But you're right. Like when you look at natural language processing, when you give the tools of not only translation of the of what's being said, but also bringing in the intonation and and the nuance of the language, it becomes harder and harder to, dis- to distinguish. And, and I actually saw an interesting uh, study. I was looking for a link. I'll have, I'll have to find it later. They were having people look and listen to uh, to chatbots, so interact with chatbots, uh, whether it was uh, a text to voice or whether it was just text only. And people were only able to successfully identify the chatbots about 60% of the time. So pretty much almost as good as a coin flip when, when you're really guessing. And to know that we are probably in the infancy of a lot of these changes that we're going to see, and it's only going to get more sophisticated. It's only going to get smarter and and more targeted. And so, so yeah, so I I think you bring up some really good points, both of you. And Dave, I 100% agree, especially with, with phishing. It's been such a good tool for bad actors to be able to collect information and and mass spam people for information. To make that more effective is is definitely a a risk that's got to be on on everybody's radar. So if those are some of the trends that we're seeing, Dave, how does that affect the way that organizations look at their their processes? I mean, Evo kind of touched on zero trust and the need to to really take that on as a philosophy. But but how do organizations look to innovate, you know, some of the processes, some of the tools, and both from a, a tactical perspective and then a longer term strategic perspective to take into account some of these risks and some of these changes we're going to see? And, and I would do want to focus more specifically on kind of what we think AI is going to to bring to the table, but I, I don't want to leave out the other aspects as well. Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a good question to ask, and I think there's a difference between the what are companies doing right now versus uh, what are companies going to do. Because the reality is, at this point, there's not much that companies are able to do specifically when we talk about AI and its impact on cybersecurity. Because again, those the tools are not they're just like you pointed out, KJ. We're kind of in this waiting game. There, there's a, there's a little bit of a delay. And so from a processes perspective, again, I think most companies right now, if I'm being totally honest, they're taking the lens away from cybersecurity specifically when it comes to AI, and they're being more blanket AI, and they're doing one of two things. They're either, we're going to go whole hog into AI and uh, kind of throw caution to the wind, or they're putting in policies and processes specifically restricting the use of AI within the or their organizations, which I think is is probably prudent, but is going to clip the wings specifically when we start looking at things like cybersecurity. So a really good example, and actually CDW, I think is a great example. Like we have a policy in place specifically on AI. We, we are only to use our own instance of uh, like ChatGPT, I can't remember what it's called, for example, not the publicly available because we could accidentally expose customer information. If you apply that universally, now you you look at maybe our cybersecurity operations center and we have this new threat. It'd be really easy to just take this sequence of 
indicators of activity and throw them into a chat GPT style uh, detection analysis engine to say, okay, tell me what actor this chain of events looks like. So we could quickly analyze, investigate and remediate an instant. And now that blanket statement saying, unless it's our own, don't use it, you know, now we're handcuffed. So now we're slowed down. So I think that's really right now the impact on the process uh, and policy side of things. A lot of organizations are, again, either saying throw caution to the wind and let's just throw our AI at all of our data, thereby exposing themselves to significant privacy risk that they're unaware of. I would say these are probably usually smaller organizations that maybe don't have robust privacy frameworks in place, or it's the other other side where it is a bit of a, of a hammer saying, you know, don't use AI at all or use it in this very specific way only. I mean, it's kind of the age old, you know, if you've got a hammer, every problem seen, uh, looks like a nail and AI is kind of the hammer that we're throwing at things, whether on the good or the bad side in terms of restriction or opening it up. Yeah, and I think that ties back into what we were talking about earlier, which is the the risk of internal bad actors. If you do just open it up, um, you know, how do you validate that it's it's being used for legitimate purposes within the business, knowing that there still is a a fairly high percentage of uh, exfiltration that originates within the organization, right? And and that is a, a continued risk. And then regarding the tools, absolutely. Like I, I think you're going to be in this situation where you're you're trying to weigh, you know, risk versus reward. And you know, what is your potential risk of, you know, not meeting the market's demands or not innovating quick enough. Or and, and so there's going to be this business conversation at the end of the day where we have to quantify the value of the tool versus the the overall risk of the tool. And, and you're right, some organizations are going to go one way or the other to, based upon their their situation. And I think that's going to drive some interesting conversations definitely as we go forward. Yeah, I, I think one of the things we want to make sure we're not forgetting about is is that there's, a, there's serious pressure on the CISOs here, right? The pressure coming from the business that wants to move really fast. There's a lot of pressure coming from one of the most reliable findings we've, we have is that there's not enough resources in cybersecurity. We can never develop resources fast enough. We can't find resources to solve the problem. The pressure is there to use something. Right? The pressure is going to be there for the business to go ahead and, and stay competitive and figure out what the CISO needs to do from that side. And then the, the other pressure, which is you're, you're going to have to figure out uh, how to automate. And we've been talking about SOAR for many years and, and organizations, some organizations are well into that direction. But I would say the majority of Canadian organizations haven't really fully adopted automation within their, never mind uh, overall, but even within their, their security practice that push is going to be there. So it's it's going to be a real challenge for the CISOs in Canada to figure out what's going to be the right path. But the pressure from the business is just as, I think, even bigger than the pressure that was there when cloud came out, when you know we were trying to figure out whether we could put our data in the cloud or not. I think the pressure is there now for just say, hey, if we don't adopt AI, regardless of what happens from a security perspective, we won't have a business tomorrow. And the business pressure is there for sure. And, and we, you know, and that's going to be, I think, really the one of the big challenges for, for CISOs in the upcoming year is how do I keep this genie uh, in a really controlled bigger bottle? Because it's it's definitely out of the bottle now, right? So. Uh. Yeah. And I, and I see that as being one of the ways in which, you know, process and, and the way that we organize within the, the organization roles and responsibilities changing. You're right. It, we're seeing the need for CISOs to get more engaged around data resiliency, around like AI planning, because it directly impacts your risk profile, right? And you mentioned the cloud and, and, and public cloud services or SaaS services. Again, decisions to invest in those types of solutions directly impacts your risk profile. And so CISOs having to take a, a greater role, not just in cybersecurity, but also engaging with the business and, and the business goals and objectives and then driving that forward. I see that as a big change in how organizations and their processes support IT and IT innovation as we go forward as well. So when we look specifically at some of the types of AI that are impacting, I think we've talked about a couple, but two that are really interesting to me, and, and I'd like to see if you guys have other ones to sort of add here. Number one is that natural language processing. So we talked about that, the impact that that will have on phishing. People are going to have to be way, way more careful about, you know, previewing links before they click. They're going to have to, you know, the, the, the CRA is not coming after you to pay with Amazon gift cards. Like there's, there's things that we're going to have to be, you know, more diligent about because the language in my mind, in, in my um, opinion, is just going to be more targeted. It's going to be better. The other thing for me is really around sort of code creation. 
And and so when you look at, uh, you know, we always talked about script kiddies, and there was a huge difference in my mind between somebody who can operate a script and somebody who can actually uh, conduct a targeted hack or, or a targeted um, exfiltration of data from an organization. And so to me, like do the big things from a tooling perspective and how AI potentially can impact over the long term. I think Dave makes a good point about it's not happening today, but as we look forward six months, 12 months, whatever that happens to be, being able to empower code generation for people that haven't been able to do it, but know what they want to accomplish. And then also this better language and, and, and better ability to communicate <laughs> and, and trick people through phishing. So, so Evo, when you look at, at you know, some of the ways in which AI can be made, maybe that's video generation. Maybe, what are some of the keys that you think are going to impact us from a, a tooling and, a, and a, you know, in an AI-specific manner six months down the road, 12 months down the road? You know, I, I, as much as I, I trust that we're we're doing development uh, when it comes to the vendors, uh, the vendor side of the business, and what the vendors are doing in the background from uh, developing a better phishing detection, better detection of uh, known bad actors, and those kind of things, I think uh, it's really going to come down to the human. It's going to come down to how people in it, and you know, this is how I talk to my coworkers. This is how I talk to my family, which is check your feelings, know your vulnerabilities, don't act right away. There's nothing that needs to be dealt with within that second, right? You really didn't win that iPhone. You really didn't. <laughs> Take your time, think about it, spend some time thinking about it. And you know, the best buffer is time. Attackers don't have the time to spend with you to get those assets from you. They, they have to move on to the next the next attack. Put that time in there. One of the things we talked about as a family is we need a we need a family password. From my parents, they won't remember the password. I gave them a red envelope that they put on there that they you know that they need to open in case they're really you know if there is somebody really in really big trouble in in the family if there's a conversation that starts that way right. So those kind of actions leaning more towards the human side. Make sure that as a human you're well prepared. We talked about vulnerabilities. That's the number one key vulnerability is is always uh, us. Right. These uh, living, breathing, wonderful things that walk around. Yeah, that's a great point. And you're right. I mean, without the victim of the of the crime, there's no benefit necessarily. And, and I 100 percent agree with you around the urgency. Is this something that's truly urgent and 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 asking yourself and, and then, in, you know, where, where we have the benefit of, of doing this day to day, you know, I, I get to work with yourself, I get to work with David, I get to work with our cybersecurity experts, you know, I, I get to have these conversations, I get to see a lot of the information coming in, I talk to our partners. And, and so we kind of live at this, this epicenter of having all of this data available. I still see things sometimes I'm like, wow, that looks really, really good. Or that's really, really compelling. And you're right, I think about my parents or I think about my kids and, and how they are going to respond. And you're right, I think the number one thing we need to do is get people to take a deep breath and really evaluate, is the urgency on this demand really valid or not? And so I think that's a great call out. Yeah, you mentioned script kiddies and coding and where AI may uh, and likely will really kind of assist Teams, not just cybersecurity teams, but teams in general, uh, in terms of rapidly kind of skilling up. I'm going to take a slightly different so I'm going to make it a little bit more broad than that. So we're going to go roundabout way to kind of get what I'm, I'm uh, you can get an answer to what I'm, uh, to your question there. I think in Canada, and I think this is true for most of the industrialized world, we, we are at a bit of a precipice when it comes to a resource availability, skilled resources. You know, we've got some significant demographic challenges. I think in Canada, um, the rate of baby boomers retiring to new labor entering the workforce is uh, at a deficit of forty to 50,000 employees or, or skilled laborers a year. And that's going to continue for the next 10 to 15 years, uh, at least. There is a, a challenge with resource availability. Add the skilled resource uh, on top of that, and it becomes a very significant challenge. And something that we've experienced in cybersecurity for uh, as long as I've been in, in the industry, and it's about to get much, much worse, much, much more quickly. This is where I think generative AI in particular can have the biggest impact, not just on coding, right, but on helping cybersecurity teams really focus on what's important and having AI kind of take care of the rest, right? So by way of example, let's look at hunting, right? Right now, if you want to be able to hunt, and let's say you are a best of breed kind of organization, so you've got uh, a separate XDR platform from 
Python platform, from vulnerability analytics platform, just use those three as an example. And each one has its own way of looking and querying that data um, to look for the various indicators of activity that you want to look for. To do that now, you need to understand what are those activities I'm looking for. So you need to ingest, uh, as an individual analyst, a bunch of threat intel to look at what are the series of chained events that I need to be looking for, whether they be processes or files or just uh, sequences of events collected together. And then you need to take those and you need to, within each platform, understand the hunting language, the query language, write those queries efficiently and then apply those queries retrospectively through data across multiple platforms. Or if you happen to have a SIM, you need to be able to bring all that data in. So understand truly what data you need, bring it all in, and then understand, again, how to write the, the hunting query. That is a significant skill that not many folks have. This is where AI, I think, can really be brought to bear because now instead of having to understand the query language and understand all of that threat intel, those chained events, in really a deep technical way, now you can just back it up and say, okay, ask the platform in natural language, tell me or find these specific indicators of activity where they're chained together in this various platforms. And the AI is going to take care of that tedious, soul-crushing activity of having to actually write those queries, test them, make sure they work, uh, and then go hunt. It's going to, I believe, and again, this is just my opinion, but it's going to rapidly evolve the threat hunting landscape for organizations so that they don't need those deep skills, so that they can adequately protect themselves and find early indicators of malicious activity long before they happen without having to necessarily make the deep investment in technical knowledge and training and skill sets. And we're going to need it because, again, I don't want to call these these folks unicorns, but because of the challenges we have demographically with, with the workforce and how it's going to evolve over the next 10 years, we're not going to have the people to spend time doing this technical skilling up to be able to do this work. It's just It's not something that's sustainable. So that's where I think AI is really going to help close that gap for us. It's going to allow our cyber analysts to do a lot more, focus on really what matters, on doing the deep investigation when we know, hey, we actually have something here that we have to investigate and not necessarily spending hours and hours a day just trying to figure out what they need to look for in the first place and then figuring out how they're going to go about looking for it. I think that's a great point. And I try to add value to these conversations and, and you guys are, are speaking at a, um, a level within cybersecurity that I love because uh, I, I get to learn as we go through this. One of the other things to consider when you talk about that aging out of, of capabilities is more and more things that are going to have to be digitized. So for instance, you talk about like the power grid, you talk about uh, water water quality treatment, you, you talk about sewer treatment, you talk about some of these critical infrastructure components. We don't have people that are are today training on managing systems like a power system and, and a power plant the way that it was has been managed the last 20 years. So not only do we have this, this need for cybersecurity experts, I think we're actually at a point where we're going to start digitizing some of these, these management systems that have really been off-grid or, or have not been integrated as tightly with automation as, as we're going to need them to be as we go forward. So when we look at sort of IoT systems and, and how we go about doing this, and I like that you pivoted from the, the doom and gloom of kind of what are the bad actors doing to what we can do about it. It's always fun to see Dave get all positive on us. This is always fun. One of the things I, I wanted to say, and double down on, on the good news, I think it's good news for cybersecurity analysts, absolutely. I think it's good news for all analysts. And I think that's what you're saying, KJ, right? That we do have a big picture of IT and digitization that we've done post-COVID, right? That we all had to jump in and make a lot of these things that were paper become digital. And it's really great. It's a really great move. And I think there's a lot of great things that can come out of AI in security. We spend our time and, you know, thinking about risk constantly. So we're always looking at, at, at the negative side. But I think there's a lot of positivity that, that will come from it. But the attackers are also uh, using those technologies, right? And that's always where we end up kind of flowing back to. Like, yes, you'll be able to detect attacks, but will attacks get better because of it, right? So it's back to that, not to harp on it, but that arms race uh, kind of conversation. Yeah, it's uh, not to let good news go untempered. 
<laughs> lucky to be the bearer of bad news. I, I do want to touch on something, KJ, that you mentioned, because I think it's a big unknown right now. And that's when we start looking at, at OT and IoT. I had the fortune uh, prior to joining CW and being part of some smart cities initiatives in my prior role. You know, in the panacea around IoT, smart energy, smart cities, uh, smart healthcare, all brought together all these data points. You know, there was a lot of hype around it. And again, kind of like AI, and just like what cloud was like back when First Cloud came out, a lot of hype, but not just there yet. But it will get there. We know it's going to get there. There's too many benefits that organizations, that governments, um, that individuals see in this kind of hyper-connected world. The downside or the unknown, I probably a better way, is what does that look like when we start layering all of this stuff on, right? So right now we're looking at AI and we are training it, if you would, against, well, really the internet, right? About, about the good and the bad, but the data that's out there. But that data, the volume of data pales in comparison to what that volume of data is going to look like when we are in this hyper-connected world. When we do have IoT everywhere, the true internet of things, fully connected cities and healthcare and energy and homes, et cetera. What does the world look like when we've got all that data and now we're letting AI run amok on top of that? That's to me a big unknown and something we need to enter into cautiously. I'm not saying don't do it. I think you're going to need AI to churn through all that data and find value from that data. But to me, it's a big unknown. What will AI learn from that data? What will AI learn incorrectly from that data? That is, uh, that's a bit, a bit of a, of a Pandora's box that you know, we're going to go down that we haven't opened yet. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting one there as well. And, and uh, again, we're currently training AI on data sets that were never built to train AI. <laughs> and so again, as we start to build data sets or extract data or curate data so that we can make it more effective. I mean, some of the things I'm seeing is, you know, curated data sets for your purpose. It's kind of funny because we talked about narrow AI, traditional machine learning and targeted activities as being a bit outdated because now we've got gen AI and gen AI can be broadly applicable and we can do, but now we're talking about taking specialized data sets to make gen AI more narrow in what it's doing. Uh, so, you know, think like uh, something that just answers WebMD style questions about your health, as opposed to being able to, to broadly address everything out there. But as we start to develop those data sets, as we start to think about, you know, broad IOT implementations, generating data that we can fundamentally attach AI to to provide better insights, that that again, that sort of changes that that whole dynamics. I think the business is telling us that the opportunity is much bigger than the risk. And they keep telling mm -hmm. us that, right? And that's and that's what we're hearing uh, over and over. And and that, you know, the risk needs to be kind of, yes, there is risk, but the opportunity is just so big. And the loss of opportunity, you know, when it comes from a competition perspective, is outweighing the risk all the time. And I've got maybe a question, you know, flipping sort of the, the tables around here a little bit. And I've got a question. Do we think that there is less risk in a smaller data set? And, and it probably doesn't work that way, right? When we're talking about a smaller data set versus a large data set, do we think that there is more or less risk in that? And, if, you know, if I take just that small data set that I know I trust that I have internally and I put AI against that, is my risk smaller than my larger data set? And I think I think it depends, but I'm curious, you know, if I'm an organization, do I want to move forward with something small first, just because I know that the likelihood of risk is smaller, right? I think the challenge with small data sets is that they are not a representative sample, a large enough representative sample. And so the real question is, it's not as smaller better or as bigger better. I think it's much more around as is smaller correct data better versus smaller incorrect data. The challenge with smaller data sets is that you've got a higher degree potential of that data being incorrect, being inaccurate, because it's not a truly representative sample size. I think it has much more to do with the, not necessarily the size of the, uh, the data, but the quality of the data with the size. That's just my Personal but that, but, but that's sorry, Dave. But that's talking about effect, effectiveness of the AI system, right? But when we're talking about risk alone, right, like security risk, does it measure up? Does it actually 
scale up to say, hey, if we have a bigger set, and, and I know it's going to be, it, it depends a lot of these times, but I think if I'm a CISO and I have to start making these risk decisions and co- having these risk conversations with my fellow CEO, COO, everybody who's pushing for this, I'm going to have to need a, a roadmap, right? I'm going to have to figure out a way to get there, right? And in, when they say, hey, you know what? This is trusted small data that we've had before. Can't we just do this? I think that's going to be the common question that we're going to get. I, I agree. I think it's going to be the common question. I think the answer, again, it's kind of one of these unknowns. I, I'll give an example. If you take a look at like what Amazon did when they applied AI to their recruitment process, small, trusted data set. What did AI learn that Amazon preferred to hire men, right? That is a That was a, a fairly clean data set, and it was small, and it was specific only to Amazon, and it learned the wrong thing. It learned bias. And that's where I think we're going to have a challenge with with AI. Again, it's not about the size of the data set, but really the quality. Although I would argue the bigger data set you have, the more likely you're going to to have AI learn (laughs) what the real world is. The downside of that is, you know, um, the real world is not exactly a nice place. And AI is going to learn some bad lessons as a result of of the data, right? If you looked at historical data, for example, right? You learn that human beings don't treat each other very nicely. And if that's what AI got out of that particular lesson, that that's not going to fold well. The other thing I wanted to, to touch on, because we we're, right now we're, we're largely focusing on the newest iteration of AI that's got the hype, generative AI, which is very different from general artificial intelligence. And we're not really that far off from general artificial intelligence. Last estimate that I saw realistically is between five to 10 years and maybe faster. Generative AI is, I think, a little bit easier to contain. Yes, you're throwing data at it, but it's it's really predictive analytics when you look at what it is under the covers. It's artificial intelligence learning, but not necessarily thinking on its own, coming up with its own conclusions on its own. Once we get to general AI, that's when I think you, you, we run into some pretty significant risks in terms of what that's going to look like based off training it on our data, whether that again be the general internet, uh, a smaller data set, data set rather, all of IoT. To me, it is a huge unknown. And there's got both positives and negatives associated with it for sure. At this point, I'm a little bit more fearful of what that might be. But then again, I, I tend to be a little bit on the pessimistic side. Yes, I, I tend to be pessimistic because I don't want to be uh, surprised. Uh, but but you're right. I, I I I think there's but I think there's some positives there too. And and Evo, I think you've raised a really interesting question about you know size of data set. And and I think it's going to come back to what is the purpose of what you're trying to accomplish. If it's more of a general function, I think the larger the data sets are going to probably drive more value. Knowing that you have both your training of your your model to interpret. And then also training and fine tuning of your data for response, and and so knowing that that we really need to treat from a, a large language model perspective, we treat those things differently. So what you may have is the broader understanding, as Dave points out, of of training your model on the real world, knowing that it's going to through averages get you a, a pretty good fundamental understanding of language and how language works, but then fine tune training it on a curated targeted data set. And drawing guardrails around the response function of large language models to only respond from that curated data set where you can, again, you know, hopefully uh, limit the amount of toxicity in the response, limit the amount of bias, limit the amount of ulterior use of that of that information. So I think there's I think there's some some nuances there and how we go about both the creation and then the fine tuned training. And then you know, what, what is the data that's available for these, these models to respond? And I agree with you, Dave, like when you look at artificial general intelligence and kind of what that means, and is, is AGI like um, a layering of, you know, are we going to hit this, this, this period in between where we're going to take models and we're going to layer them on top of each other to maybe do sort of a hierarchical method of sort of generalized intelligence or are we going to skip right to the point where we have Skynet and and all of that kind of <laughs> kind of happen? So so I think I think that's good. So moving the conversation forward, though, when we look at at how you know we talked about you know, machine learning, we've talked about how natural language processing, how how you know bad actors are leveraging it, whether that's phishing, whether that's you know maybe optimizing the creation of of different code to attack 
talked about how on the, on you know our side of the fence, really being able to uh, maybe create um, more in-depth threat intelligence, or maybe as we digitize some of these things that haven't been digitized in the past, how do we apply you know like a zero trust framework and methodology and leverage AI to to build out some of the tools and the and the assessments and the things that we're going to do to to better implement that. How is the space changing near-term versus long-term, and where should people start to look to learn? So, so you know, part of what we try to do is, is really, you know, not only talk about this, but, but where can people go to learn more about these types of tools? You know, Dave, when, when you're educating yourself and you're, and you're out there, you know, what are maybe some of the sources that you're, that you're trusting and, and how you're building your toolkit and educating yourself? You know, that's an interesting question. And I'm going to back up a little bit because we're kind of, again, we're focusing on uh, a little bit of, you know, where, where are you going to build your toolbox? What are you going to learn? What are your trusted sources for AI? And it skips the very important piece of learn practice in the domain of cybersecurity first. Cybersecurity is a big practice. It's not as simple as a particular tool, a particular attack. It is a series of activities. And if you're going to start your focus anywhere, don't start with AI start with the basics, the foundations around um, cybersecurity, understand the difference between risk uh, or different risks rather, uh, and how to quantify them, understand the architecture practices around cybersecurity, understand the various domains of network and endpoint and, and what have you. That's kind of first and foremost. When you're ready then, then you can start to dovetail into, into AI. And I don't think you need to learn anything specific in AI, unless you're gonna be an AI uh, engineer Really, it's learning what tools have which capabilities. Uh, and right now, it really does sit largely with uh, with the vendors, the cybersecurity vendors who are, you know, they're throwing a ton of money into AI development within their their tool sets. They've got great resources on AI, the great white papers on AI uh, in terms of how it is being leveraged by them and uh, how it's being leveraged by attackers. I think right now that's probably the easiest and most trusted source that you can go to. And, you know, I always sort of take things that vendors provide with a, a bit of a grain of salt because there's always a little bit of marketing in there and, and selling in there. And that is true. But they are, I think right now, the primary for cybersecurity folks, really the primary source of trustable information. Beyond that, you know, self-learning, I, I would like every, every cybersecurity person to just Take a basic AI course and understand exactly what AI is, right? When we talk about generative AI, what exactly is it and how does it work? Because I think that will help folks understand some of its current limitations, but also where it can go. And I think the foundational principles of how AI works uh, and the various types of AI, I think would be very helpful as, a, as an adjunct learning to the cybersecurity uh, foundational learning that, that organizations or sorry, individuals within organizations should do. But again, to dial back on it, I think we run the risk of focusing too much on AI and not enough on what really matters, which is the foundations of cybersecurity. I think it's harder to avoid conversations about AI than it is to find conversations about AI. Like I, I think my news feed is constantly about AI and cybersecurity because I'm I'm living in this in this world, and and I'm probably there, there's some bias happening here as well towards what I read. But you know, just to, the source of news are are very focused on that. But I agree 100%. Start start with the basics. Start understanding risk. Start by understanding. Uh, you know, the, the technologies that support cybersecurity because they are all going that way. Keep in mind that there's going to be a lot of advancement in the next couple of years for all these technologies and organizations are going to have to decide, you know, what, what the impact is of using these technologies within your organization. But if you're uh, out in the world and, and you are, you know, whether you're you're at the highest level of, of security, at the C-level of security, whether you're director or manager, AI is going to be a part of your conversation. It's going to be part of it. I don't think there is a direct website we can send you to that will teach you everything there is to know. But I like Dave's idea of like really just taking on a, an AI course, an official AI course that will help you understand the difference between generative AI, what language, large language models mean, and understanding all those pieces so you can speak to it uh, intelligently when you're speaking with your peers in the context of security. Yeah, and it's a good point. And really, for me, I think the biggest change, because as you point out, I mean, we've had things like robotics, we've had things like computer vision, we've had things like machine learning, and and we've been doing these for quite some time. 
what generative AI I think is is doing not only for AI but for all sorts of different areas is it's just making it more accessible. And so when you think about the accessibility to do things like <laughs> like automation or or do things like code creation. Or, or do things like, you know, uh, good language translation or being able to incorporate pictures into your process of, of generating content, et cetera. So, so I look at it as an accessibility thing. As, a, as somebody who's outside of cybersecurity, not necessarily being a cybersecurity-focused person, you know, I look at our, our security study. I know we're going to be getting some information around AI there. I know we're going to be doing some market trend reporting and, again, sort of polling the Canadian marketplace around AI and bringing some value there. Surprisingly, PBS uh, in the U.S. has some really just basic AI courses that are just good foundational videos that I, I found uh, when I was starting this journey to be very, very informative because they're they're basically breaking it down for like a ninth grader. Uh, which is great for me. So some of that was was really valuable. Yeah, I just I like using analogies to kind of bring points home. And I'm going to use this analogy as, as kind of an example in terms of the importance of of learning the domain of cybersecurity uh, and its importance in spite of having AI. And I'm going to use the calculators example. We all have calculators. We all use a calculator in our daily lives, but we still learn math in school, right? Because it's important that we understand how math works. Right? Math is fundamental to everything that we do. There are computer programs that can any math that you need it to do, or at least most math that we would need to do in our daily lives, anything from a calculator to, you know, functions and programs and whatnot, um, tax calculation, call it what you will, but we still learn math. And it's important that we still understand how to do math, addition, subtraction, multiplication, uh, division, so on. I think it's the same with AI. I think if you look at AI for the cybersecurity professional longer term, we'll use AI in our daily lives as cybersecurity practitioners. In fact, we do today with our current tool set, but generative AI and maybe eventually AGI. But it's still going to be important to understand the domain of cybersecurity. You need to know cybersecurity and you need to learn it. AI is an adjunct to that. I think that's the important point that I wanted to make. That's a really good point. And it's really around, um, and I think the more and more that we get into it, the more and more I learn about it, it's a tool. It's a tool that's going to, when used appropriately, it's going to make us more effective. It's going to make us be able to uh, accomplish things that maybe are adjacent to what we understand, but maybe don't have the, the skill to really do ourselves. It's an optimized YouTube video for a lot of people. <laughs> it's, it's finding that, you know, what are the steps involved in, in accomplishing, you know, what I'm trying to accomplish. So the other thing I really find interesting with AI, just as a personal aside, is you know sometimes the cure to the sickness is more of the sickness, <laughs> and and the and when we look at AI, well, well, what what is our way of cataloging and curating data better? Probably AI toolkits that can get in there and do that. And what I'm excited about is some of the things that we're doing, particularly around cybersecurity, particularly around leveraging you know AI to help with some of the the data classification challenges that we're having is it's going to allow us to really do some of the things that we've talked about today that have really been a challenge for organizations. We talk about zero trust. Zero trust is, is you know, you got to know your people, you got to know your resources, and then you got to create mechanisms to only allow access to resources to the right people. How do we identify all of that? How do we actually go through the process of documenting and creating those processes? That I think that's really interesting. Something like uh, data loss prevention. DLP is something that tons of organizations have struggled with, primarily because they don't know their data very well. So, so I see all these, these things sort of converging. And once the you know, organizations identify AI as providing a significant level of value, and in order to, to unlock that value, we got to know our data, control our data, uh, curate our data better. I think it's going to unlock potentially other aspects and other avenues for us to drive value for the business where maybe we've stalled you know, over the last sort of 5, 10, 15 years. So when it comes to cyber risk and uh, and cybersecurity risk, you know, Evo, is, is there something around AI that kind of keeps you up at night? Is there something that, you know, you're worried about? I, I heard a really interesting, you know, one of, the, one of the cybersecurity guys was doing a presentation, I think a month or two months ago, and they said Q-Day. Q-Day being the day where quantum computing becomes massively available and all of a sudden there's no encryption anymore. <laughs> um, so, I mean, is there is there is there something similar in the AI space that keeps you awake at night, or or, or you know makes you concerned on on behalf of our business and, and our customers? 
I, I think in in terms of uh, you know thinking specifically on on what are the things that that will that that I worry about the most in terms of of AI, I think we touched on it already a little bit, which is how will the most vulnerable, uh, and that you know not only talking about people who are who who are more susceptible to being attacked, but also talking about organizations as well that don't have the in-house uh, capabilities to do security. Um, how are they going to handle this? immense like dave talked about that that fingerprinting that really targeted attack that will be able to empty my bank when it, there isn't a lot of money there uh, to start with right that can bring organizations and and people and and individuals to their zero zero mark when it comes to financial or whatever you know even even emotional impact of that i think that that is my biggest fear my biggest fear is that we are not going to be able to protect those organizations and those folks who have the highest level level of vulnerability so that's the thing that worries me first <laughs> i think that's the first thing that i worry about out of many uh, that are maybe coming down the road from a, a security and ai perspective and one of the things that we're doing our, our damnest to help with organizations here I think uh, from my perspective, the thing that keeps me up at night and actually does keep me up at night, it's not, I'm just not, not uh, placating the question here, is the lack of transparency and regulation around AI. And I don't think it gets nearly enough press as it should. Throughout history, there have been tremendous leaps that mankind has made in the technology space that have brought both positives and uh, and negatives to humankind. And I think AI is along those same lines. Like you look at uh, nuclear technology is a really good example, right? Amazing power generation can do a lot of good for humanity, but also can be turned into a bomb and destroy humanity. And admittedly developed in secret, but regulated. Government controlled, and not, not necessarily a big government guy, but we are talking about something as foundational as in uh, as artificial intelligence i really think we need way more transparency what are the big tech players actually doing in this area where are they at right now and significant levels of, of, of regulation is required and much more government involvement and and part of the worry for me i guess is the fact that you know a lot of our our leaders at the national uh level both you know canada the u.s the industrialized world I really do believe they barely understand this stuff. And that is a, that's a huge concern, a huge concern. The education is just not there and it's moving so quickly. I worry that they cannot come up to speed fast enough to regulate it. Those are the two. That's the thing that keeps me up the most. And I lack of transparency and regulation in AI. Cause again, any, any, anything that can be used for good can be used for bad. Yeah. And that's been kind of a key theme to this today. I think was really around the, the, the fact that you've got, bad actors that, that are going to be using some of these tools and these capabilities, but we also have, you know, tools internal to doing that as well. And, and you're right. I think from a legislation perspective, we're already struggling to, I mean, we're still trying to catch up on, on, you know, public cloud. We're still trying to catch up on uh, um, things like blockchain and crypto. And, 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 and so now you just add this and, and you're right. The faster that AI evolves, the faster it's going to continue to evolve. And so, so I think that's now, so let's, let's flip to the other side. because I want to end on a high note. What are the things that, that calm you down when you think about AI? So we talked about, you know, some of the things around, you know, being able to, to be better at threat hunting, to, to, to really empower people, maybe fill some of the skills gap. Maybe as we digitize some of these critical services, wrapping more zero trust around that. But, but David, when you look at, you know, how are we looking to the future and leveraging AI as a tool to mitigate risk? And what are some of the things that, that allow you to get to sleep at night? The, the biggest thing for me is something we've already spoken about, um, and that is really using or leveraging AI to help offset this demographic cliff that we're headed towards in terms of skilled labor. We just simply are not going to have enough people, uh, particularly in the cybersecurity space. We're going to need something that drives efficiency uh, in a way that's never been needed before. And that is an area where I think AI is going to be very, very helpful. And so from that aspect, I wouldn't say it calms me down, but it certainly is a, a benefit of AI I see coming. And I would say, honestly, generally, I want to live forever. If AI can help us figure out immortality, then so much the better. I think it's the only thing that really gives us that promise. That calms me down a little bit. And, and I think, uh, Dave, uh, you and I have a, a little bit of background in, in you have a lot more in, in the healthcare space and stepping outside of the cybersecurity space. I think 
that's an area where I think AI could could do wonders. And 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 we know how much you know. Even back when um, it's over 20 years ago that I worked in a in a healthcare research organization, uh, the amount of data that they already had at that point, the amount of data that they had to figure out how to sift through. I think high performance computing is gonna is really gonna benefit from this. I think there's a lot of cool things out in the positive side of things that can come from it. And I think when it comes to the number one thing that we tell organizations is, you know, think about that risk and, and protect that asset that you're looking to protect for the business, enable the business to be successful, but at the same time, you know, make sure you're 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 protecting the organization to its uh you know risk potential. So it's 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 always it's always a balance between the two. I think I, I'm excited about the many things that can happen. There's a lot of positive things that can come from this and will come from this. We're already seeing some of it in the healthcare space and and in other areas as well. So there's a potential uh, great future there for uh, uh, for making amazing happen, as we say. Yeah, I think it's a great point. I think it's a good highlight to to end on. Um, so, you know, Dave and, and Evo, I appreciate you guys jumping on the podcast today. I really appreciate the engagement. I think we covered a lot of ground. I'm excited about it too. You know, I'm a futurist. I like I like the way things are going. I like how things are changing. I, I do get excited about that. But thanks again for joining us on the podcast and thanks for everybody that's listening. The CDW Canada Tech Talks podcast is going to continue throughout the rest of the year. We're going to do an episode a month and uh, bring great great people from both internal to CDW, some of our key partners, some of our customers, uh, and drive these conversations. So thanks again, and I appreciate it. Have a good day. Thank you, KJ. 